You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. And now let's turn to God's Word. Uh, To bring us to the Lord's Supper today, we're going to be hearing from the Lord at Psalm 66. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's printed in the bulletin for you. And I'm going to ask you, if you're able to stand, uh, to please stand. You can, if, uh, if not, you can stay seated. We, we, we stand for, for the reading because it's a biblical sign of respect for the speaker. Uh, you see examples of this in the Old Testament uh, where people stand and the speaker is God, of course. I'm just the reader, but the speaker, the speaker is God. Psalm 66. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your in- enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living, and he has not let our foot slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened, but truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. This is God's inerrant, infallible, and beautiful word to you today. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to you and your word, I would ask that you would forgive the preacher, his sins, and speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word, to the end that we might find joy in you and rest in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I I feel this way about virtually every psalm we, we, we cover here at New Life. You could you could do almost do a whole series on this psalm alone. I know one pastor gave five separate messages out of Psalm 66 at a retreat. Um, I'm not going to do that to you today. We're coming to the Lord's table. So what I'm 
going to do with Psalm 66 here is, is pull out for your consideration three truths that are, that are in this psalm for you to reflect on and consider as, as we come in obedience to, to, to the Lord to eat the bread and drink the wine. Okay, three truths. Truth number one, the whole earth, the whole earth is under obligation to worship God. I'm not sure we think globally like that all the time. It, it, uh, sometimes it's, we, we, we think parochially about God. Um, you know, he's our God, he's the American God, he's... Um, John Stott, I remember, commented beyond some study leave, being in a little village uh, and, and going to a little village church, and he uh, noticed that, that there was sort of no mention in, in, the, in any of the services while he was there of sort of a world beyond the village. And, and he said, I was only left to include that, the, that, that they were worshiping a village god. Uh, right, this is Psalm 66 reminds us that God is not a local God. He's not a village God. He's, he's, he, he, he is owed worship by the entire earth. Now, you see this in verses one through four, right, where the whole earth is positively commanded to, to worship God. And then you see it negatively expressed in verse seven, where the rebellious, uh, who would be the people inclined not to worship, uh, the Lord are commanded not to exalt themselves, but to but to come under the the, the powerful lordship of of God. Now, and what so what this truth highlights, uh, you know, this truth that the whole earth is under obligation to worship, worship God. This reveals the problem behind all our other problems. Right? The problem behind all our other problems, whether the, these problems are on a world scale or a national scale or family scale or even on an individual scale, our problem, the fundamental problem, is a worship problem. Now that may sound simplistic, but it is not. It's, it's simple, but it's, it's not simplistic. There are real world consequences, negative consequences, when people, men and women, fail to worship God as we are obligated to do. Those consequences are laid out specifically in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, where it, it, Paul just brilliantly maps out what, what happens when people don't honor God, where they fail to give God thanks, in other words, where they, where they are not worshiping God, three things happen. He says, our, our thinking becomes futile, becomes empty, it becomes uh, worthless. Uh, our sense, our internal sense of right and wrong becomes darkened. And, and then, and finally, what we acknowledge or would call wisdom is, in, is objectively foolishness. Now, I probably don't need to tell you that you don't, that you see Romans 1 sort of writ large in our current events today, don't you? Right? As, as the world continues to move away from the worship 
of God. Um, increasingly, we're seeing feudal thinking. We're seeing darkened senses of right and wrong. And, we, and, and certainly, we're, we're seeing a lot of it. I, I can't, you know, I, sometimes I can't believe my ears as I'm listening to the news that what passes for, for, the, for wisdom in our world is often so much foolishness, right? So as we move away from the worship of God, intellectually, morally, spiritually, the wheels begin to fall off. And that's, so that's why, you know, the, the fundamental problem is a worship problem. That's, that's the problem that all the other, our other problems, you know, emerge from. Your choices matter, right? Your allegiances matter. Not all of them, I mean, right? You can shout for joy, to the Padres, or you can shout for joy to the Dodgers, you know, nobody particularly cares. That's, that's not, that's, you know, a, a, an important allegiance. But not all of our choices uh, are, are like that. Not all of our allegiances are like that, right? Uh, you can align with a terrorist cell in, uh, in this country, and that choice is going to ha have real-world negative consequences for you. Right. When the signers of the Declaration of Independence inked their names to that document, they acknowledged and knew that they were, and we know that because they actually put it in the document, that they were pledging their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. That choice, that allegiance made clear by their execution of, of that declaration had real world consequences for them. Life and death consequences. England wins, they die. Your choice to worship God is on an even more serious uh, level than that. Though the world will tell you it isn't, right? The world will tell you that, in particularly in matters of religion, spirituality, that you know it, the choice of who you worship or or how you exercise your spirituality is you know you've you've got all the freedom of a buffet, and and and, and it really doesn't make any difference uh, you know which which entree you choose. But it's this is just not true. This choice matters. This allegiance matters. You either worship God or you're worshiping something else, whether it's human reason or science or progress or technology or education, philosophy, politics, diplomacy, any religion that posits a God other than the God of the Old Testament, God revealed in the Old and the New Testament, is, is a choice that and an allegiance that that is, is, has high stakes. Real and serious consequences. So if you really want to be wise, objectively wise, if you want to be on the right side of history, as so many of our politicians want to be these days, if you want to be vindicated rather than, than judged in the long term, then what you need to do is obey Psalm 66. Worship the Lord, acknowledge your obligation as a creature of the one true God to worship Him. It really is our only hope. 
right? It's only as we collectively do this as a human race, individually, one person by one person, that we have any hope at all. So that's the first truth. We are, we are as is the whole world, under an obligation to worship God. Now, truth number two, what's the essence of that worship is celebrating what God has done. Right? It's not just enough to say worship God. What, what, what does that look like? Well, the essence of what God worship looks like is focusing on and celebrating what God has done. Right? Not what you've done, not what you feel, not what you get out of it, but what God has objectively, historically accomplished. Now that's true in both a, what I would call a macro sense and a micro sense, right? The macro sense you see in verse five. The psalm writer is really sort of says to all of humanity, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. See, that's, there's the macro sense of, of focusing on what God has done. And then there's the micro sense at verse 16 where it comes sort of back to you. Come and hear all you who fear God and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Right. Now focusing on, on what God has done for you. You know, sadly... In much of evangelical Christianity, particularly, I think, in our country, we've, we've lost some of that focus. It's, it's very, it's, it's, it's seductive and it's easy for our worship to, to sort of veer off, off of a, a focus on what God has done and to put it on us, right? About what you do, how you feel, what you're experiencing, the do is more about you. And um, reading some Philip Yancey recently, it's sort of his, uh, his spiritual autobiography. And in the course of that, sort of talking about his, the evolution of his church life, he, he made a statement, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, you know, he, that he'd come to the realization that you should leave a worship service not asking what, I, what, what did I get out of it, but rather asking, was God pleased with what happened? Okay. And it's, isn't it so easy for us to ask the first question, right, rather than to focus on, was God pleased with what with what we did. And, and so it seems to me Psalm 66 shows us what God wants, what pleases God. And that is when we focus on and celebrate what he has done for us. It's, just, it's primary. So what has he done? What has God done? Well, the psalmist answers that question from his point in redemptive history, right, as a Jew writing before the coming of Christ. In the macro sense, he's thinking of the exodus and the conquest, right? Verses six through eight. He points to the exodus where, you know, God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and, and parted the Red, as part of that exodus, parted the Red Sea, right, to allow the Jews to escape 
uh, the Egyptian army. Uh, and then he points to the conquest. It's really one sort of one event. The conquest is sort of the end of the Exodus, where 40 years later, God, God once again stops the water, right? He stops the Jordan River so that the people of God under Joshua's leadership can walk uh, across the Jordan uh, on dry uh, land to enter the land that God had promised them. Um, now those two events, right, the Exodus and the conquest, be together become and are constantly referred to in the Old Testament sort of as, as the definitive salvation event it, uh, in, in Israel's history, right? It is, it is the... Um, it's the, God, it's the Old Testament gospel. And, it, and, and the exodus and the conquest become a picture for us and a pointer for us to God's greater salvation event, God's ultimate salvation event. And that's the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, on his own exodus, which is what Jesus called it. Who, on that exodus, right, by his obedient life, his substitutionary death, his justifying resurrection, and his exalting ascension, rescued you, rescued me, from a much deeper and insidious kind of slavery than, than, than the kind of slavery that the Jews suffered under in Egypt. We as human beings were in bondage to, in slavery to sin and the death that sin brings, and the futility and the meaningless to life that sin brings, you know, as it separates us from the source of life, God. And, and, and so he, he rescues us from that bondage to sin and, and death, and, and he brings us out, uh, just like he brought the Jews out of Egypt, he brings us out into a redeemed relationship uh, with God and the forever abundant life that goes with being redeemed to God, being connected to God by what he's done and by faith in what he's done. That's on the, on the, on the big scale, right? That's the macro scale of what God has done. On the micro scale, that redemption, redemption accomplished by Jesus becomes redemption applied by the Holy Spirit to you. He, he makes it personal, right? God brings it to you through the Spirit, individually, personally. That it becomes you, your story. You're, you're the beneficiary. The psalm writer talks about that, right? Verses 17 through 20. You come and hear what God has done for my soul. And then he lists it, right? He, he now listens to my prayers. He attends to my prayers. That is, he doesn't just listen. He, he acts on my prayers. And he doesn't remove his steadfast love from me. He, he, uh, he loves me with a, with a steadfast love. That's that magical Hebrew word, chesed, which is the, you know, notoriously hard to translate, but, but you know it when you f see it, right? It's, it's, it's God's... Uh, uh, always and forever and unbreaking love, right? It's, the, it's, um, it, it's his marriage love. It's his promise love. It's his covenant love. It's not a, it's not a love that goes up and down with feeling and emotion. It's, it's a love that's, that is pursuant to a promise, just like one makes a vow in a marriage to love 
you know, come what may. That's how God loves us, and, and God doesn't back off on his promises. Now, that's what this Old Testament saint in Psalm 66 is, is referring to. You know, look, look what God is doing for me. Um, this is even truer for you, right, Christian? Because of what Jesus has done now. God, God certainly does not withdraw his covenant love from you. He forgives you. He loves you. He hears you. He answers your prayers in ways that are always best and most loving for you, even though sometimes we don't understand it or see it that way. Don't be put off. I know a lot, I think people, when they, when they hit Psalm 66, get put off by, the, by, the, uh, by verse 18, right? If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, then God would not have listened to me. And, and, and I know my own heart, and I go, oh, man, there's a lot of iniquity in my heart. How can I know that God truly listens to me? Well, look, at cherishing iniquity in one's heart means that you are, you, 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 you are not recognizing iniquity for what it is and, and repenting from it and asking God to forgive you, right? If you're cherishing it, you're holding on to it. You're not bringing it to God uh, as something for him to forgive. If you do that, right, and I'm speaking to you as one who, who knows there is remaining iniquity in my heart, when we, when we confess that to the Lord, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all that unrighteousness. It's, it's a good thing. So this is why, this, this truth, that, that the essence of worship is celebrating what God has done, that's why no less than the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, I decided to know nothing among you Church of Corinth, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's our paradigm here. Now, why did Paul say that? What, what was his justification for limiting uh, his message to Jesus Christ and him crucified? Paul says, I do that so that your faith might not rest in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Man, if there is anyone who could have brought human wisdom to the, you know, into the equation. It would have been the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest thinkers in human history. But he didn't. He knew there was something unique about the church. The church is where we come together to know and to remember because I always forget it. And that's the basic truth that it's, in the end, it's all about Jesus. It's not about my wisdom. It's not about the world's wisdom. Jesus, says Paul, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We celebrate what Jesus did. And that's exactly what the bread and the wine are communicating to you today. You know, I think my sense is that, you know, some Christians today, particularly in our context, uh, you know, want their, the leaders in the church to give them a different kind of wisdom to tell you how to have um, a successful marriage, to tell you how to raise godly children. You don't want Ted's wisdom on that. 
Even if it was good, you wouldn't want it. Right? There's, there's a higher and greater wisdom, and it's Jesus. Right? And as we, as, as we preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the gospel, that's what grows you. That's what transforms you. That's what encourages you and moves you and empowers you to, 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 live, to love and to forgive and to be humble, to not be afraid, to not care about what, to care more about what God thinks of you than what the world thinks of you. You know, think about it. I mean, I could give you, right, a message about marriage and, and, the, and the benefit of my experience, or I could tell you about the gospel and what Jesus did to forgive you and how emanating from, that, from the cross where, that, where, where, where he was executed to pay fully for your sin, uh, he continues to hear you and forgive you as you br daily bring those sins to him. And, uh, you know, I, I hope I'm not the only one who, who sometimes prays, Lord, I you got to be bored hearing from me again on this. You know, here it is again. I'm confessing this again. And yet God patiently, faithfully forgives me every day. If, you, if I talk about that, isn't that going to change the way you deal with your wives' husbands? If you know that that's how you've been forgiven, how can you not do forgiveness uh, uh, you know, to, with your wife? The gospel, it's as, we, as we think about and, and pray about and spin out the ramifications and implications of the gospel, that's, we're changed. The Holy Spirit changes us. All right, so... Truth number one was the whole earth's under obligation to worship God. The essence of that worship, truth two, is that it's all about what God has done, not you. And then finally, truth number three, this way of faith in Jesus, the way of Jesus, takes you through easy times and it takes you through hard times. But there is always only one destination. You know, Psalm 66 is nothing if not realistic. It mentions the good days, right? The victorious times, those, those occasions where God is obviously present and manifestly working in noticeable, even supernatural ways. Um, I mean, think about what happened in the Exodus and the conquest, right? But it, the same Psalm unflinchingly faces the hard days, and let's face it, the hard days outnumber the, the, the easy days, right? The routine days, the boring days, the, the crushing days. Verses 10 through 12, right? Describe there when, when you're caught up in the net of your own sin or, the, or, the, or other people's sin, when you're carrying life burdens that, that are crushing you, um, when people and circumstances run you over, when, you, when it feels like you're going through fire and flood. You know, he, the poet's talking poetically, but you know exactly what he's talking about, right? You're living it. To follow Jesus by faith is to go through both good seasons and suffering seasons. 
And some of you are going, well, why? Why is that? I mean, how can that be here when, when I'm looking at Psalm 66 and it opens up with this note of joy, right? Shout for, shout for joy to God all the earth. And then it ends with that beautiful statement of his, of his faithfulness, right? He's not rejected my prayer. He's not removed his steadfast love from me. How, in the, you know, in the, with that kind of, those kind of, you know, exalted bookends, can you have this recognition of a reality that seems inconsistent with those things? That God leads us into these absolutely crushing times. What's going on? Why does he do that? Well, we don't know why in every instance. We don't know all the reasons. We probably wouldn't understand them if God gave them to us. But, but God's word doesn't leave us totally in the dark and, and that says a lot about why, we, uh, why, why God would, would lead us into suffering. And it gives one reason here in Psalm 66, and, and that is uh, he, he does this to test you, to try you like silver. Right? Now understand, I think we probably hear that wrongly some of us anyway when we think okay god's testing me it's like you know you're what you've just walked into your math class and the teacher you know hits you with a pop quiz right pass fail and you know you're thinking secretly he wants me to fail right now this is not this is not god testing you in a pass fail sense uh in fact Friends, listen, if you're, if you're a Christian, if you're following Jesus by faith, you're not going to ultimately fail, ever. First, because, God, because Jesus has already passed the test for you, right? It's done. But, but secondly, uh, as it says right here in the psalm, uh, God is going to keep your soul among the living, Right? Even if that means in, in resurrection after you die, you're gonna be, your soul is going to be among the living. You're not ultimately going to fail here. And then he says also that he's not going to let your foot slip. What he means there is that God will not let you slip in such a way that, he, that, that you slip out of his grasp. Right? See the little kids w walking around new life, right? With, you know, with m mom or dad holding them. And there's a lot of slips and tumbles, but, but they're okay, right? right? Because, because mom or dad doesn't let them go. And that's exactly what, what Psalm 66 is affirming here. Is God doesn't let you go. You're not, you're not ever going to get out of his grip. See, so, so what it means by testing is, is, is really explained by what he then goes on to say. It's like being tried like silver. It's, it's, it's talking about refining. Testing in the sense of refining. One of the things that God is doing in taking you through these brutal, hard, crushing seasons is, is that 
as you face those times and as, you, as God allows you to go through them, uh, it is refining you, it's changing you. It's like a good refiner, like a good father, he's using those things to make you a better, stronger, purer person. And I think we can all relate to that, right? I, I mean, at, at some level. We may not like it, but we can relate to it. Did, did you, think back, did, did you ever learn, did you learn more from the A's you got or did you learn more from your F's? Right? I always learn more from the, from the bad grades, right? Because I, I, I had to struggle through and, 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 and make sure I learned and, 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 and got, a hold, got a hold of what I was missing, right? Um, we, we, I think we all have, have experienced the truth of this, that as, as we go through unwanted, unasked for hard times, that though we would never ask for it again, we realize that having come through it, we're better for it. We know God in a deeper way. We're, we're, we're stronger in our faith. We have a, we have a healthier perspective on, on life and what it throws at us. Let me give you an example, and I, I won't use names here, but there's a family here in our church, and, and they're not unique because right, we got a lot of families that are struggling, but this family has has been going through some really difficult uh, challenges recently: sickness, death, spiritual battles. Many of you have been praying for this family, and and I just have to tell you, as a pastor who has been praying for them, I was I was encouraged, so encouraged by a recent communication from the family where where, where the, re reflecting on what they've been going through and all these challenges and, and how hard they are and admitting how much they hate them and how hard they've pushed against them and pushed against God and complained to God that, you know, f that he's allowed these things to happen to them. They're very candid about that. But, but this brother goes on and says, you know, I've, I'm coming to a discovery and, and, and that, and you know, we all make this, this is the discovery I'm talking about. This is it. I, I realize now that God is using these very things to make us stronger and to give us a better perspective. And, and, he, and he said some, I'll quote him, he, and I love this. He said, God's breaking may actually be a building project. He's absolutely right. And that's, that's what Psalm 66 is affirming. And that's why even in the midst of the pain, we can shout for joy and we can celebrate the reality that God has not taken his love from us. So here's the bottom line, right? Through all the challenges, right, that the Jews faced, that the psalm writer's writing about, God ultimately brought them out to a place of abundance, what he calls a place of abundance. See that? Verse, verse 12. Now, for the Jews, that place of abundance was the promised land. For you and me, it's, it's much bigger than that, greater than that. It's not, it, it's not, any, it's not just a strip of, of land in the, in, the, in, 
in the Middle East. It's, it's the greater reality that, that, that that land, so important, always and forever points to, and that is the whole earth, right? The, the, Israel is, is, is a microcosm of what's ultimately gonna be true for the entire planet, right? Our ultimate destination is what, what, what the New Testament calls the new heavens and the new earth, right? We think of it as heaven, but heaven is, 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 is an intermediate stop. Heaven's wonderful. I'm knocking heaven. And it's where, right now, where we go when, as, as believers, where our spirits go when, uh, when we die. But ultimately, right, the, the testimony of Scripture is that heaven comes down, right? We don't exist ethereally. We don't float on clouds, right? Our bodies are ultimately raised, reunited with our spirits, and we are going to enjoy life on this planet restored to the garden that it was originally made to be. Paradise restored. Heaven, right, the resurrection dimension, the abundant, the place of abundance that we are going to is a place where you're gonna, you're gonna dance, you're gonna hold hands, and you're gonna hug. That sounds really good in these COVID times, doesn't it? Right, and, and you're gonna eat and drink with Jesus and with your loved ones who have died in the Lord. It's, it's a place of wonderful, eternal abundance. Um, and if you belong to Jesus, if you're clinging by faith to his body and blood represented by this sacrament here, that's your God-guaranteed future. That's your place of abundance at the end of everything you're gonna go through. Another way to say it, and, I'll, uh, and I will definitely close with this, um, just a short quote from uh, Sarah Walton, who is a um, Christian author and blogger. This quote was shared with me by a couple of people here at New Life, and I loved it. And I think it, it, it says what we're, we've just been saying. She, she wrote, if you are in Christ, your scars will not have the last word over your life. His scars will. Isn't that awesome? And that's what this, this, this course points to, to the scars of Jesus that will have the last word over our lives. Not the scars that we're going to get inevitably in living by faith in a tough, hard world. Those don't define us. Those... Uh, this defines us as Christians, the body and the blood of Jesus. That's a reality worth celebrating. So let's come to the table, celebrate, let's pray. God, thank you for this word from Psalm 66, for the truth of the gospel. And now, thank, as we come to the table, Lord, we pray for your spirit to be present with us and to feed us We've heard the gospel. Now, Lord, feed us with the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online 
at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.